1: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. In my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Roger Wiegand will be on with me uh, in the second hour of today's show, the second half of the second hour of today's show. I should mention to you again that there is a special introductory uh, offer to all three of these newsletters separately if you call our office at 718-457-1426 that's 718-457-1426. Or you can go to uh, miningstocks.com that's miningstocks.com uh, to learn more about uh, those special offers and our regular offers as well. I like to say though that the best news uh, the best website to go to to follow everything that I do, uh, including access to this radio show, is to J. Taylor Media. That spell out my first name J J A Y, TaylorMedia.com. There you can access this radio show. You can uh, you can also access all three newsletters and a lot of other things I'm doing, including video interviews with CEOs of companies, many of which I think have great upside potential. Um, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, to making this show uh, the most popular show on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to thank our sponsors for making this show financially viable. They are, for the first hour today, Crocodile Gold, Go West Limited, Trevally Mining Corporation, Enertopia Corporation, Smash Minerals Corporation, Ariga Gold Corp., Sand Gold Corp., and Palangio Explorations. And I will be speaking to Ingrid Hibbard, the CEO of Palangio Explorations, a little later. Well, this week our program is different from most because I have invited an agnostic onto our show to talk about the themes of theism, atheism, and agnosticism. Uh, Vincent Bugliosi Bugliosi, uh, is one of two main guests today, the second being Arch Crawford, who has been on this show in the past uh, a couple of, two, three times. You might be justified in wondering why I'm bothering to discuss the issues of theology on a show that is largely... Uh, focused on markets. Well, my answer to that question is because in the order of importance in our lives, nothing could be more important than whether or not there is a God who rules over us, who controls world events, and who may also love us and want the best for us. If all that is true, then we best pay attention to that and uh, our lives and, and how we live our life will uh, should be at least changed accordingly. The way we live our lives uh I think, would have a lot to do with whether or not we believe in a God or not. Of course, it would be way too much to ask uh, for a definitive answer to the God question in a half an hour or so that we spend with this legendary trial lawyer, Mr. Bugliosi. But what I think he will do is cause all of us to think a little bit harder. And if there is one thing I think Americans do not do enough of these days, and that is think. Based on responses I have received so far from the promotional piece that we sent out in today's, uh, about today's show, I'm expecting many listeners to be outraged that I would invite an agnostic onto my show. However, I believe challenges to faith uh, are healthy, actually. Uh, if you are offended by an honest challenge to the questions of the existence of God, then perhaps you are not so sure yourself uh, about what you believe. I say that because faith by itself, in my view, is no virtue. You can have faith that if you jump off an Empire State Building, you won't fall and hurt yourself, or if you fall, you'll be okay. You can have that faith if you want to. All religions have a faith component to them, that's for sure, but that doesn't make them true. There is nothing wrong, in my view, in fact, I think it is a virtue to be a doubting Thomas. In any event, I'm looking forward to the views of Vincent Bugliosi, uh, on the God question, followed by Arch, que- Arch Crawford, excuse me, uh, who certainly does believe in a higher power of some nature. Arch, who has been with us several times in the past, will give, a- give us his views uh, on the markets from an, ast- uh, an astrological uh, point of view. But it should be noted that, in addition to his excellent work as an astrologer, Archie is also one of the top technical analysts in the world, uh, and uh, really, on that basis, I value very, very much what Archie has to say. Before we get to our uh, our first main guest, um, Ingrid Hibbard will be with us to talk about Palangio Explorations and the exciting progress her company is making, not on one but two world-class targets, uh, in, gold targets uh, in Ghana, West Africa. And in the second half of the second hour today, as I mentioned a little while ago, Roger Wiegand uh, will be with me to talk about his take on the markets and where uh, in the commodity space you can make a lot of money. Uh, that's right. Uh, we'll get Roger's ideas, and he did put out uh, a fairly extensive piece this morning to his subscribers, uh, and he'll be talking about that, no doubt. Finally, to round out today's show, uh, and to conclude it, I'll have my friend and colleague, Ted Ohashi, uh, with me. He'll be uh, talking about uh, a stock, actually a stock, I think, in the vanadium uh, field or, or one of those medals. I, I can't remember what he said. He's gonna talk about a stock that he thinks is very promising and he'll be passing that on to us uh, in the final minutes of today's show. Uh, before we get to our first guest, I would like to just share a few of my own market ideas in the four minutes that I have remaining, uh, in this segment. First of all, I continue to believe the Fed is fighting Mother Nature and the en- and, and that in the end, Mother Nature will win. By fighting Mother Nature, what I mean is the Fed is trying to defy the economic laws of nature by trying to create wealth by printing money. The problem that I see with that is that in a well-developed, credit-based monetary system like we have in the U.S., debt is the raw material from which money is manufactured. And unlike a precious metals or commodity-backed monetary system which grows with the growth in the item backing the money, our fiat system is backed not by an asset but by a liability. And as I demonstrate frequently in my newsletter, my weekly newsletter, debt at least in the U.S. is growing exponentially, while income, if it is growing at all, and I have some doubts that it is, uh, in real terms that it's growing at all, is growing in a linear fashion. <clears throat> Excuse me. That has been going on for quite some time now, and in this process we have become uh, essentially what I believe is a bankrupt country. As long, uh, I suppose, as we have a military that can finance itself, or at least the, as long as the rest of the world is willing to finance it, uh, we may be able to force countries to accept our dollars for quite a while ahead. Uh, also, as I noted in my newsletter last week, I think the continuation of the empire may be one of the reasons why the global monetary system may deflate rather than inflate. I'm saying from a broad policy maker's point of view, and I believe the Federal Reserve is very much, Uh, a puppet of larger interest behind the scenes that the Fed can uh, deflate any time it wants, it can stop inflating, and from time to time it has jerked the rug out from underneath the markets and uh, allowed deflation to take place. And why would it do that? Well, I thought it was very interesting uh, a speech Hillary Clinton made last week in which she uh, warned the Pakistanis that if they weren't more vigilant in fighting terrorism, well, they may just lose their U.S. dollar goodies. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how could this empire survive? How could we continue to move forward? Uh, How could the United States empire survive if the dollar becomes worthless, as many of my gold bug inflationist friends insist it will? And would it not be in the interest of the ruling elite uh, to try to keep some value of the dollar. Yes, they may want to see it decrease in value relative to other currencies over time. They may want to see it decrease in value even according uh, relative to gold. But to have the dollar collapse immediately would be, I think, not something that the uh, that the Federal Reserve would want, and and the policymakers as a whole would want. So, I continue to believe there are many reasons, political and economic, why deflation continues to re- remain a major problem. And I think that's really that Mr. Bernanke is most concerned about deflation. And so, with that in mind, we have to think about what we invest. And I continue to believe gold shares in this scena- in this scenario, in a deflating scenario, a destabilized deflating scenario, will be the best place to put your money. Um, and that it will even get better, but we want to have cash available to buy the gold shares when the general market finally uh, gets hit very hard, and I expect that will happen sometime before the end of the year. We'll try to get Arch Crawford's take and uh, Roger Wiegand's take today, later today's show to find out what they're thinking about that. Uh, finally, I would also say that there are some select oil stocks that I like very much. And this morning I met with Chen Lin and the CEO of a company uh, with its, uh, with uh, operations in Nigeria. I'm going to be telling my subscribers about this company uh, this weekend. I, in fairness to them, I can't reveal the name of this company right now to the listeners of this show, but if you do sign up for my newsletter, you will be privy to that. It is a company that is selling at approximately one times cash flow and with a very, very rapid growth. Yes, it's a company that has operations in Nigeria, which may give some people some concerns for political risk, and I don't blame them for that, but I believe overall that this looks like a story that is very, very worthwhile, at least putting a small amount uh, of it in your portfolio, in a diverse uh, portfolio. So I'll be talking about that company and providing more details to my subscribers this weekend, and if you'd like to take advantage of that, you can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, in New York. 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to miningstocks.com. Well, that's just about all the time I have before the commercial break, and when I come back, I will be with Ingrid Hibbard, who has been an exceptionally successful CEO at Pelangio Exploration. You won't want to miss what Ingrid has to say about her company's developments on not one, but two world-class gold targets in Ghana. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Ingrid Hibbard.
2: Enertopia Corporation is exploring for precious metal deposits in the western United States. The Copper Hills Project is a near-surface copper and silver oxide deposit. Historic bulk sampling has returned results of 0.8% copper and 3 ounces per ton silver. This year's work program will consist of an IP survey and a drilling program to test the near-surface copper-silver mineralization. Additional projects are under review. Enertopia trades on the OTCBB under ticker ENRT and in Canada under the symbol TOP on the CN. SX Exchange.
3: Travali Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada, is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Travali trades
2: on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV. Smash Minerals is a gold exploration company in the Yukon whose management was responsible for the first significant gold discovery in the White Gold District with Underworld Resources, which was then sold to Kinross Gold in 2010. Smash holds one of the biggest claim blocks in the Yukon, and exploration has already identified three targets. Intellectual capital combined with advanced technology will enable Smash to be quick to drilling in August 2011. You can discover Smash Minerals on the TSX Venture under the symbol SSH.
4: Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by.
2: America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
5: Welcome to the human.
1: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host Jay Taylor and I'm really pleased to have with me Ingrid Hibbard. She's the uh, president and CEO of uh, Palangio Exploration. Welcome Ingrid. Hi Jay. Really good to have you back. I should uh, for those uh, who may not be, in, who may not remember or be familiar with Ingrid's past. She had one successful operation, one successful exploration company uh, that was uh, ex- that was really Palangio what was the, the, the exact name of that? Palangio Mines. Palangio Mines, and because you were actually really at a very uh, more advanced stage than you are now, uh, you had actually developed what is a very sizable mine, that being Detour, the mine at Detour Lake. Could you tell our listeners how large is that becoming now? How many millions of ounces uh, have been discovered there, and how large will that operation become?
6: When it's uh, in production, it's going to be the largest um, gold mine in Canada. We're coming up on 20 million ounces.
1: Mm, Interesting. Well, and our subscribers did very, very well. Uh, That's one of the reasons Ingrid is one of my favorite people, because she made me and my subscribers a lot of money. We picked up that stock at $0.08, and I know that we actually had recorded when we sold it uh, around a a uh, 3,000% or a 30-fold increase. So, Ingrid, we're looking for you to do it again. and. I sort of have this feeling that you just might do that. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what you have going on there now in Ghana. You've left. Uh, you've left. Uh, uh, well, you haven't actually left Ontario. You have some properties there, but your main focus is in Ghana now. Tell our listeners uh, about what you have going on. Um, maybe you want to start on the. Maybe, a, well, you, you go ahead. Tell our listeners your your primary property. I know initially was the Oblafi. Which, yes. uh, which was very exciting. And then you came along and picked up a second property that is, uh, you know, that, that is, has that is really uh, provided some, some, quick, um, some quick excitement for shareholders. Tell us about that one perhaps first.
6: Sure, yeah. Seeing as those are the most recent uh, results, there was a press release recently. <laughs> Um, on our high grade target there, and, uh, those numbers came in at about 14 grams over 7 meters and 5.79 over 8. Mm-hmm. And this is still, uh, very near surface above 100 meters. Mm-hmm. So I guess you could say that Manfo has eclipsed, uh, Obwassi right now. Uh, you know, we got that project in September. And we made four discoveries already. So, you know, that generates a lot of excitement.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, Dan is a great place to do business. So, you know, we're really firing on all all pistons. The new project, Manfo, is on the Sefwi Belt. It's located between Newmont Sahafo and Kinrossas, Toronto. So it's mm-hmm. 14 kilometers uh, from Newmont Sahafo, which is a 16 million ounce uh, mine and it's 50 kilometers from Kinross, which is about 6 million ounces. Both of these mines produce from a series of pits with some high-grade underground ounces, and, in fact, the underground component is becoming quite significant in, in both cases. So given that we're kind of on that same trend in between the two, that's what we're uh, expecting to see. So four discoveries already make some sense in, in that context. Um, so we're pretty excited. Two of them are more advanced already. So Polkacrum East and West are the are the more advanced targets. Uh, Polkacrum East. Is a soil. It started as a soil anomaly that was over 1.1, 1.2 kilometers. We now drilled it at 100-meter spacings over a 660-meter strike. And uh, let me give you some examples of the grade. Now, and these are above, um, all above 200 meters. So, mm. you know, the some of the grades are. Um, you know, 1.53 over 42, 1.5 over 51, 1.64 over 33, Mm -hmm. and then a little bit of higher grade, 4.18 over 12. So I don't want to spend a lot of time because it's hard for the listeners with just numbers, but, you know, over 660 meters at 100-meter spacings, this thing is starting to hang together. And a big bulk tonnage target like that is something you can really add tons in a hurry.
5: -hmm.
6: Um, And then, in the best of all possible worlds, you'd hope for a little high-grade deposit right near it. And lo and behold, what do we have? But we have Polycrime West, um, which is about a half a kilometre to the west, and that's our high-grade target, where we, you know, we've had those most recent results of uh, 14 grams over seven and almost six over eight. Uh, this one we've drilled off now, at, because it's high grade, we're doing it at 50-meter centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got about 100 meters drilled out and down to 100 meters. So, you know, it's something that is uh, certainly a, a great sweetener and in line with what you'd expect given the mines in the neighborhood. We're going to be, so we're drilling there now. There will be additional results coming from those targets, as well as the other two discoveries uh, Infanti East and West to the South. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're, now, you know, what I've talked about is maybe uh, 10%. Mm-hmm. of the property, and even then there are targets between between these. So we, we've looked at a very small piece of this 100-square-kilometer property. So we're doing target generation while all of this is going on. We're doing EM, IP, and some more soil uh, geochemistry. So we expect to have more drilling targets uh, develop as we go along on this
1: project. Mm-hmm.
6: So from September to now, it's been a pretty exciting ride.
1: Yeah. Indeed, and I, I think you said that 660 meters of the 1.1 kilometer long, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Poculum East has been drilled so far. Do you expect to drill that the, the entire length of that, and then, uh, and then that's one question. And secondly, when might we expect to see a 43101 resource come out of this project?
6: Uh, yeah we we'll, we are going to be going back and and doing if you take a look at the website we kind of call it the uh, you know the fish or the whale because that's the one that's what yeah. it looks like so we're heading yeah. down towards the tail now mm-hmm. and uh we'll we'll be doing that um, because we are quite sure that um, we have the potential here to develop a a pretty significant resource the question is it's hard to put a a an exact time frame on it. So right now we're aiming for an initial resource because as we generate targets, uh, you know, we expect to find additional targets, but an additional resource we'd be targeting <laughs> m- mid-next year-ish.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Mid-2012-ish. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. So now you have what looks like it could be uh, several surface deposits. Um, Do do these hook up together underground, do you think? Do the geologists think this is one major system?
6: Well, um, you know, they probably are um, are related, but no, uh, The at both Toronto and at O'Hoffo, it's a series of distinct pits rather than one big thing that we'll link mm-hmm. up together. And at both of them, um, you know, the underground component was uh, later discovered, so we are actually uh, got the advantage of learning from the others who've gone ahead of us.
1: Um, okay, so now <laughs> I understand that the Kinross operation uh is one of of various pits, is that right? And then then do they process in, in one uh on one heap leach uh, is it a is it a heap they're leach? not
6: heap leach oh, no they're not so he- they they both have one mill. Uh mm-hmm. well each has a mill, I oh, should okay. say um, but yeah, so they process them through the one processing plant at each place.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, this certainly is very exciting. That's one of two properties. This is the one that's come along, uh, that you acquired after the Obasi. And this is the one that's really sort of given your stock some life and some investor interest. Uh, I should tell the listeners, uh, <clears throat> that there are approximately 138 million shares out. And I looked at the stock is selling at 76 cents today. So, um, also, your symbol on Toronto is PX, I believe, and so people can buy it there or over-the-counter as well. But talk to us a little bit about the obasi now, uh, unless you have more that you'd like to talk about uh... Uh, well, let's, you
6: know what, let's, uh, so Obwasi, at this point in time, Obwasi really has taken a bit of a backseat. It's mm-hmm. in a great location. It's, uh, you know, it's a 290 square kilometer land package beside one of the largest uh, uh, load gold mines in the world. It's beside Anglo Gold, Deshanti's Obwasi mine. It's, uh, you know, produced uh 30 million ounces over its life, got another 30 million ounces in resources and reserves. So, this project absolutely has the potential for a game-changing discovery uh... but you know we're at that stage of looking and trying to make a discovery and it's virtually impossible to predict when that's going to happen Mm -hmm. so manfo has been tremendous for us because as you're uh, as you're waiting for us to make a discovery at obwasi we're growing manfo so uh... this is a great situation to be in. We're fully financed. We are drilling at both places. So we have a drill turning right now at Oblasy, and we have a drill turning at Manfo, and we're in the process of getting a second rig over to Manfo, and hopefully that will happen within the next uh, month or so.
1: Mm -hmm. How is your uh, financing situation? Do you have enough, I guess, to, to go through your program this year?
6: We, yes, we do. We've got uh, over $10 million in cash. We uh, did a small financing earlier this year and then $6 million of uh, warrants for exercise this year. So we're in a position where we've got, uh, you know, two great projects with lots of uh, drill targets on them and uh, the drills and the cash to do it with.
1: Mm-hmm. You have an excellent website. I should tell people that they uh, that they should go there really, to get a good sense of what you're to get pictures of of what you're talking about because, obviously, this is only a a verbal forum. But people could go to Palangio.com. It is, I believe.
6: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, there it, it is it is so difficult to try and explain to people, you know, what the soil geochem anomalies look like or how the, uh, the everything sort of relates to each other. And at Owasi, there's a very nice uh, animation of the mine next door, so that you have an understanding of where we are in relation to that, and and the ore shoots at the mine next door. Um, so it's I think it's a great resource for people.
1: It really is a great resource uh, if you're visual and you need to sort of really kind of understand uh, not everybody can uh, get on an airplane and go over there and see the project, but they can certainly do the next best thing, and that's to go to palangio.com. Anything else you'd like to add, Ingrid, before we uh, conclude our discussion this time?
6: Well, you know, one of the things I always want to make sure people understand is um, what a great environment uh, Ghana is for gold exploration. You know, it's mm-hmm. been... Um, a center of gold exploration for centuries. It's a former British colony. It, you know, the language of, uh, the official language is English, so it's very easy to, to, to work. It's based on a British common law system, so land tenure is, is understandable to us and, and you can make sense of it. And in the last five years, there's been probably more five million ounce plus discoveries made in in Ghana uh, than anywhere in the world mm. uh, so it is a very, very favorable environment when you look at political risk and potential discovery
1: mm-hmm. well, it certainly is interesting, I think you know a lot of people just sort of write off it 's in Africa, so we'll not bother with it, but not all countries are equal uh, in terms of their political risk profile, and certainly Ghana would be. Uh, considered maybe the most stable if not one of the most uh, stable two three four countries in Africa I I would absolutely
6: and you know the other benefit it has one of the biggest issues facing the industry right now is um, technical people access to mining engineers Mm -hmm. geologists uh, um, you know prospectors people who have that kind of technical experience and because Ghana has two two universities that train geologists and uh, geological engineers and they have a history of gold mining, um, you have a, a, a workforce that speaks English, that's educated, so it's a huge advantage. And in fact, our country manager is Ghanaian, and uh, Sam Turcarno, and we've been able to—he's been able to find us people who worked on the Turano deposit and have experience in exactly the environment we're working in. So it's a, it's just a huge advantage in able, being able to leverage the project forward.
1: Well, and another huge advantage I might mention to my listeners is management. I know Ingrid wouldn't want to blow her own horn, but I'll blow it a little bit for her. This, uh, the lady you've just been listening to has had one success uh... she works extremely hard and i think i'm i'm believing there's a good chance she's going to be on to another major success another discovery of a major gold deposit so thank you very much Ingrid, for sharing your story with our listeners once again uh... folks uh, don't go away we're going to be right back very shortly uh... with uh... with an author that uh... is known a very famous author uh... mister Bugliosi. uh... he is the author of helter skelter he was the attorney that tried Charles Manson in that famous case many years ago uh Mr. Bugliosi will talk to us today though about a different topic uh and that is one about uh the issue of divinity um, God if you will uh God is on trial is he well we're going to talk to Mr. Bugliosi uh an agnostic for his views on this major question perhaps the biggest question that we have ever had to face uh in our own personal lives so don't go away we'll be right back uh with uh, Vince Bugliosi.
2: <laughs> Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Auriga Gold is a Canadian mine development and exploration company working in Manitoba's prolific flin-flon greenstone belt. Auriga's experienced management team is focused on developing the Maverick Gold Project and expanding gold resources. Maverick Gold includes historical gold resources, a 1,000-ton-per-day mill, developed underground ramp, year-round roads, and exploration access. Auriga plans to bring Maverick Gold back into production in 2012. Auriga Gold trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol AIA.
4: Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with Bite, with operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by.
2: This program is brought to you by Sandgold at www.sandgold.ca.
3: Sandgold is an aggressive gold company operating in Manitoba, Canada, a top-10 gold mining region. Sandgold continues to show tremendous exploration success. With two mines already in production, the company is now revealing a new gold mining trend. Discover the potential at Sandgold. Trading symbol SGRCF on the OTCQX and SGR on the Toronto Exchange. Visit our website at www. Zangol.ca Trevali Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada, is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Trevali trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV.
1: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Vince Bugliosi. Mr. Bugliosi is an American attorney and author best known for prosecuting Charles Manson and other defendants accused uh, in the Tate-LaBianca murders, which became the basis of his classic Helter Skelter, the biggest selling, true crime selling book in publishing history. Uh, In the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, uh, Mr. Bugliosi successfully prosecuted 105 out of 106 felony jury trials, including 21 murder convictions without a single loss. His most recent books are Reclaiming History, The Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and that was published in 2007, The Prosecution of George W. Bush for Murder, and that was published in 2008, and The Divinity of Doubt, The God Question, just now published in this year, and that's the book we're going to talk to him about in a few minutes. Uh, I would love to really talk to Mr. Bugliosi about the Kennedy assassination and the prosecution of George W. Bush for murder. Those would certainly be fantastic topics. As some of you know, the Kennedy assassination has been a recent topic on this show, uh... as we try to understand what is really taking place uh... with the powers behind the throne what is really going on uh... what you see is not necessarily what you get uh... in the mainstream media i would i dare say most of our listeners sort of understand that but today mr Bugliosi has agreed to share his precious time with us to really talk about the god question the phone. And this is a book in which vince turns his skeptical eye on both religious believers and the atheist who reflexively oppose them He argues lucidly and persuasively uh, why agnosticism is the most responsible position to take with regard to such eternal questions as... Uh, the existence of God. Welcome, Mr. Bugliosi, to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times.
7: Oh, happy to be on the show, Jay. I appreciate it.
1: Really good to have you. Um, it, it's, uh, it's really an amazing experience talking with you. I've known of you for many years, as, as many millions of people have. You define yourself as an agnostic. Uh, just to make sure we're all understanding what that term means, can you define
7: the term uh, for <clears throat> our listeners? Well, uh, a theist uh, believes in God. An atheist does not believe in God. An agnostic takes a position I don't know. Perhaps the better definition of an agnostic is someone who uh, says that the, the existence vis-a-vis non-existence of God is actually an unknowable uh, a question, and therefore if it's unknowable, you can't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to tell people that uh, I have a rather bright person on my side, at least uh, most people think he's bright. His name is Einstein. Mm -hmm. Uh, Einstein was an agnostic. Interestingly enough, Jay, Darwin was also an agnostic. I say interestingly enough because um, most evolutionists are atheists, and yet Darwin, the the founder of evolution, turns out to be uh, an agnostic. I I view the question of whether or not there's a God to be an impenetrable mystery uh, beyond human comprehension, as Einstein put it. Uh, The problem is just too vast for our limited minds, and that's why uh, I was listening to you summarize um, what the book's about. I view that the most responsible, reasonable position to take on the issue of whether or not God exists uh, to be agnosticism I like uh, Dorothy um, or uh, Gertrude Stein's. She goes back to the 1930, um, the expatriates in Paris, you know, with Hemingway and mm-hmm. Picasso and all of them. <clears throat> Gertrude Stein said, uh, as non literary as it sounds, she said that there ain't no answer, uh, there ain't going to be any answer, there never has been an answer, that's the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're aware of Clarence Darrow, of course, the great criminal defense attorney of the 1930s. The way he put it, he says, I do not purport to know what ignorant men are sure of. Mm -hmm. So both the atheists and the theists have made allegations. The atheists, there is no God. The theists, uh, that there is a God. The burden of proof is on them. I don't believe they've even come close to meeting their burden of proof. So agnosticism really is kind of a default position that um, no one can prove whether God exists or not in the most, I think, Reasonable position to take is I don't know. I don't know. And if Einstein didn't know, I, I'm 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 on uh, I have good company. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, so a lot of people on both sides of this argument like to claim that Einstein uh, represents their their views. I, I know people on the Christian side, uh, on the theist side, sort of believe that he hinted at it, but.
7: Well, people, uh, you're right. Uh, he, uh, at, at seven, several times during his career, uh, the great physicist who was quoted on the issue of God perhaps more than anyone else, he did say things uh, which caused the theist, the atheist, the agnosticist to say um, he's one of our own. Mm -hmm. Uh, They claim him as one of their own. I'll give you an example. He said that God does not play dice with the universe, Mm -hmm. which would imply what? That he's a theist. But the only time, and there may have been others, the only time I ever saw him actually use one of these appellations, i.e., theism, agnosticism, or atheism, was in a letter he wrote... I think it was October the 25th, 1950, to an M. Berkowitz, whoever that was, apparently a friend, uh, the letters at the um, the Einstein Archives uh, at Princeton University. And in in that letter, he said, Concerning the question of God, I am an agnostic. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the first time I ever saw where he actually used one of those words. But he did say things throughout the years from which an inference could be drawn that he was, um, you know, either uh, an atheist, an agnostic, uh, uh, or a theist.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, um, you, as a trial lawyer, um, were probably told your jurors to that you were going to prove the guilt of one of your uh, one of the people you were prosecuting beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. Um, Is it, your contention then that there's that you can't take it to that level of knowing or not knowing that God exists yeah. or does yeah. not exist. You can't get to that. You can't get that close with him. No a reasonable doubt.
7: No, uh, uh, definitely not. Uh, both theism and atheism have big, um, big defects. Uh, I'm very hard in the book, by the way, on atheism. In mm-hmm. fact, the atheists are savaging me more on the internet than anyone else. <laughs> um, I view atheism as being an intellectually barren. Uh, philosophy whose current champions I'm talking about people like Christopher Hitchens, Sam mm-hmm. Harris, uh, oh, uh, Richard Dawkins, the British uh, evolutionist. Um, these people uh, can't seem to find a non sequitur that they do not like. It's just a series of uh, one non sequitur after another. Obviously, I don't know whether there's a god or not, but if there is not, I do not believe that atheistic dogma leads one rationally to that conclusion. I have yet to hear one powerful persuasive argument that the atheists have ever come up with for the non-existence of God, uh, at least theism, has one powerful argument, and that's the argument of first cause, which is very, very difficult to get around. And if we have time during the interview today, I'll, I'll, I'll get into first cause.
1: Yes, I would like to ask you about that for sure. Well, you, uh, in terms of God, I mean, defining God, as you were saying, it's a mystery if there is one. Um, <clears throat> the Judeo-Christian concept of God is a monotheistic God, a almost personalized um, power. Right. uh... that that uh... you know cares and loves uh... his creation at the same time uh... causes them to suffer a great deal and i know uh, that, that's one of the main problems. I think it was a problem that Darwin certainly had, uh, when his, uh, I think it was his granddaughter or somebody close to him at a very young age died. And that's when, uh, I've heard him, I've heard it said anyway that right. that's when he began to question the existence right. of God very significantly. This is a major problem for Christians, I think, is explaining how a loving God, uh, could create billions of people knowing that most of them were going to go to hell and suffer trillions of years of burning and torment yeah this yes. is one of the main problems uh, that Christian the Christianity has probably in explaining itself.
7: Yeah, well, <clears throat> in the book I point out that the Christian God, by definition, cannot exist. Uh, Christianity ascribes quite a few virtues to God, like omnipresence, uh, omniscience, etc. Mm-hmm. But the two main virtues that it as, it ascribes to him are omnipotence, all powerful, and being all good. Now, he can either be all-powerful or all-good. He cannot be both for the simple reason that there are two irreconcilable virtues. Um, For example, uh, if he's all-powerful, what does that mean? Well, that means that uh, he has the power to prevent evil. Uh, and yet, we know that he has allowed in the past and continues to allow to this very day the unspeakable horrors and atrocities that have taken place through the years. Uh, uh, you, you, you mentioned the Holocaust, or mm-hmm. you know, but people do because it's the most obvious example. Six million people uh, died in the Holocaust. Uh, that immediately tells us. Immediately tells us that he cannot be all good uh, if, if he's all powerful. Likewise, if he's all good and didn't uh, approve what was happening at Auschwitz, but didn't have the power to stop it, then he's not all-powerful. So my, my, my view is that... Uh, if Christians insist on having a God, they certainly uh, can have a God. But if they have any respect for logic, they're going to have to redefine who He is.
5: Mm-hmm. But
7: just saying there's no Christian God does not mean that there's not a non-Christian God who created the universe. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's where I'm conflicted. I'm not conflicted at all on the Christian God. He cannot, by definition, exist. Mm-hmm. The the God who created the universe. That's where I'm um, uh, agnostic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the logic is certainly certainly
1: clear, and we wouldn't expect anything less from from a man as successful as you have been in arguing cases in the courtroom. Uh, that is for sure. Uh, you note in your book that many genius thinkers like Karl Marx, uh, Nietzsche, Freud, to name just three, uh, have claimed to be atheists, while most of your book uh, is, I would suggest, uh, criticizing the Judeo-Christian faith, and for reasons you just noticed uh, yes. noted. Uh, you also reject the arguments uh of those past atheists as well as more recently vocal people like uh, Hitchens, you mentioned Dawkins uh, Why are you not convinced um if you just tell us a little bit more why you 're not convinced of the atheistic uh argument
7: well, like i said uh it 's just one. Uh, what do you what, you what you call it a a non um, sequitur after another? Uh, I'll give you a couple of them. Uh, the, the, the original one that they always uh, trumpeted was that uh, if God existed, <clears throat> why do we have all the horrors and the evil in the world? But uh, that's a non sequitur because it presupposes that God has to be all good, which theoretically he wouldn't have to be. Uh, it's an obvious non sequitur. He obviously can be all powerful without also being all good. Uh, Another non sequitur of theirs that they rely on, atheists, as as you know, Jay, uh, do not believe that God uh, created man. Uh, They believe that uh, man evolved from some original life form, you know, a bacteria somehow evolved into Mozart. But that, again, presupposes that God did not create this original life form, Uh and evolution took over from there. Uh The the main um, (laughs) non sequitur that they're focusing in on now, um, above all others, uh, uh, particularly Hitchens and Sam Harris, they've completely embraced the notion that if they can slay the dragon of organized uh, religion, they have therefore slain God. But this presupposes that you cannot have God uh, without religion, which is too ridiculous to even comment on. There was a 2010 National Pew, P-E-W poll, mm. which confirmed something that I already knew, but I didn't have the numbers. Um, the Pew polls showed that over 30% of Americans uh, who do not belong to an organized religion nevertheless still believe very strongly um, uh, in God. So what we have here is the fact that the antithesis of God is no God, not no religion. But uh, this is one of their typical non-sequiturs. The the basic problem, of course, with theism is something that, that you already know, I don't have to tell you, is that uh the belief in god is based on faith mm-hmm. and faith by definition is uh a belief in the unknown it's a belief in something um uh, uh for which there's no proof mm-hmm. faith basically i guess you could say is a euphemism for um, hope speculation wishful thinking uh, why should we want to see by faith uh, what the eye of reason uh, rejects? Um, I don't denigrate faith. I think faith has lit many candles of warmth throughout the centuries, uh, softened pangs of fear, particularly about death. But let's, let's not confuse faith with the object of the faith. So many mm-hmm. Christians believe you have faith that's almost the equivalent of the object of the faith, i.e., God or, or Jesus actually existing. Uh, perhaps the main problem with theism is that the pillars upon which it is based, when you subject them to scrutiny, uh, uh, they fail. And that's really the heart of this book. I mean, it, it covers a vast array of, of, of subjects within the general rubric of God and religion. But perhaps the main part of the book is showing that some of these long-standing beliefs that everyone accepts without question, when you subject them to scrutiny, they they fail. And that's why uh, Divinity of Doubt, uh, I'm more excited about this book than any other book in my entire career. And I've had seven New York Times bestsellers. Three got up to number one. It's not just because, Jay, uh, there's no more important subject, as you indicated, than uh, God, Uh but we're talking here about a 2,000-year-old conversation uh, in which nothing significant has been brought to the table for a great number of years, and believe it or not, uh, divinity of doubt does that. If we have time, I'll go into a couple of things that you're not going to find in another book. Do we have the time, or what?
1: Well, I hope so. Uh, I'm sort of thinking that we should have probably carved out an hour. We do have another guest, so it won't be possible today. But, but certainly, faith is you know is an issue that I have. Uh, you can have faith in anything you want. I mean, the Mets uh, fans had faith the Mets were going to win the pennant. I could have faith that I'll, if I jump off of the Empire State Building, I won't die. Um, yes. And, and there's, all religions have faith. Uh, there's a faith element to all religions. It doesn't make them true. Right. Uh, it, you know, and I, I really, really sort of detest what I consider to be Bible pimps and the lemmings that follow them. I think it's, as I said in the introduction, that Americans don't do enough thinking. We need to do more thinking. And on this issue, I think the most important issue of all. uh, Maybe you could just take a minute to tell our listeners why this issue matters, because I honestly believe most Americans are so involved with, you know, desperate housewives and American Idol and baseball and football uh, that they never
7: think about the God question. So why is it important to Americans? <laughs> That's a good why is it important to Americans that, that they believe in God, you mean? Oh, believe or, even, in God. Believe,
1: or, or, or even ask the question.
7: Well, you know, since the very dawn of time, uh, humans have looked to the heavens uh, for some supernatural being to help them in their daily lives uh, and to uh, give them uh, life after death. And these, uh, this supernatural being eventually became known as, uh, as God. Um, the Roman satirist Petronius said that fear is what brought the gods uh, into the world. Also, uh, religion and God is important because people want to believe that they're here for some purpose, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not just some accidental um, uh, adventure. Mm -hmm. So it it, it does serve a purpose, but it it, it gives rise to a question, did man create God or did God create man? Mm -hmm. And, And I would ask this perhaps as a rhetorical question, is it just an an enormous coincidence that um all of the traits that man would want God to have uh, uh e g uh, all good, all merciful, all compassionate, all intelligent, every trait that he would want God to have, God just happens to have, and every every power that man would want God to have, such as uh giving us life after death and meeting our loved ones after death. God also just happens to have so mm-hmm. the the rhetorical question is uh did man create God to meet uh his needs and desires no i'm not mm-hmm. saying that man created God cuz i don't know i'm an agnostic yeah. but it's yeah. quite a coincidence that everything we would want God to have for our own purposes he just happens to have
1: or maybe the christian god as you as you the judeo christian god uh, is is what you're referring to, rather than something yep. different.
7: Oh, of than course, that.
1: yes. Yeah. Yep. Um, well, certainly, there's uh, <laughs> there's so much to talk about. There have been so many. There have been, I, I think you would agree, some great theistic thinkers too. Over,
7: oh, absolutely, over his, yeah.
1: Uh, but what you're saying, I mean, Saint Augustine was a long time ago. You're saying 2,000 years, not much has changed. Sir Isaac Newton came along more recently, and then another, I think, uh, great thinker, C.S. Lewis. Also, yeah, I I
7: reject Lewis as a great thinker, but go ahead.
1: Okay, all right. Well, I'm sure we don't have time to get into that today, but uh, and and somebody else, you said there's nothing new, and and I'm not rejecting that idea at all, except we did have on this show one person named Dr. Hugh Ross, who is uh, an astrophysicist who I think probably uh, is really a mainstream astrophysicist who I think provides some interesting uh... ideas about how some of these seemingly contradictory things in in the judeo-christian uh... theology of uh uh... could exist at the same time but he is really talking about god being outside of time and space and you know we live within the four dimensions of time and space it's very difficult for us to comprehend anything he talks about how mathematicians can understand in theory that there exists outside of the four dimensions other dimensions they can't perceive it or you know really understand it no. um, but you know that that for me was one uh one uh, one uh intellectual uh a contemporary intellectual that provided some sense of of logic uh if you can call it that uh that I, I, that I, I really thought talking, might have some
7: I'm really talking about things that deal with the Bible itself. You see if you take away the Bible Mm-hmm. you take away Christianity and you tra- take away Judaism. They could mm-hmm. not exist without the Bible. And I'm talking about going into the Bible itself as opposed to speculating on what's happening, whether God is outside of time and space. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, uh, I'll okay. just give you one one very quick example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found evidence in the New Testament which what read, which, when read in conjunction with the Hebrew Bible, specifically um uh... isaiah 714 mm-hmm. that proves not just beyond a reasonable doubt but beyond all doubt i'm talking about the bible now I'm not talking about my speculation mm-hmm. that jesus actually was not born uh, of a virgin mm-hmm. not if you look at matthew one eighteen in conjunction with isaiah seven fourteen now if he was not born of a virgin this means he wasn't the son of god if he wasn't mm-hmm. the son of god then the christian doctrine That God had his son die on the cross for our sins goes out the window, too, in effect, ravaging much of Christianity. Mm -hmm. I know it's very hard for your audience to accept what I just said. Sure. The only problem is that it happens to be the truth. When I say the truth, not that God was not born of a virgin, the truth that the Bible, it's inferable from the Bible that he was not born of a virgin. And this is why so many people reading uh, Divinity of Doubt, in fact, I just got a review saying almost these exact words no one who reads Divinity of Doubt will ever again feel quite the same way uh, about God and religion. Uh, It turns out, for instance, that uh, the immortality of the soul, I I traced it all the way back, was a pure invention of Plato, which Christianity was literally forced to embrace. Why? Because without it, there's no life after death, and without life after death, there's no heaven and hell. And, Jay, I would pose this rhetorical question. How does Christianity uh, survive? How does it even stay uh, in existence uh, without heaven and hell? Because heaven and hell is what it offers or threatens um, uh, its followers with. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. these are the things that I'm talking about that go way beyond beyond just speculating about whether God is outside of time and space. Mm -hmm. We're bringing it right down to the Bible itself. Everyone says God gives all of us free will. You've heard that a million times, right? And if you question them, they say, well, it's in the Bible. Well, I got into it very, very heavily. It turns out contrary to popular belief, the Bible does not say there's free will. In fact, it says the precise opposite. Now, I don't have to tell you the enormous ramifications of this. How do you explain God's punishment of evildoers uh, if what they did was preordained by God? I'll just give you a couple very quick citations. Isaiah 63, 17. Lord, why do you cause us some, some free will? Why do you cause us to stray from thy ways? Deuteronomy, uh, not, not Deuteronomy, um, Romans 11.32 goes so far as to say that, quote, God consigns all men to disobedience. Uh, disobedience. Mm-hmm. The Talmudic scholars have been struggling, not for years, but <clears throat> for centuries, because the Judaism believes very strongly in free will, Sure, trying to figure out a way to get around um Exodus 4.21, where God tells Moses, I'm going to harden the heart of the Pharaoh, cause him to be stubborn so he will not set the people free, referring to the Israelites uh, in Egypt, supposedly to justify his infliction or imposition of the ten plagues on the people of Israel to cause the Pharaoh uh, to release um uh, 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 the, the uh, Israelites. Mm-hmm. That's heavy, heavy, heavy-duty stuff, and it's so revolutionary and so much against what people have heard a thousand times in the past that people read in the book, it's going right over their head, they cannot accept it, and they're focusing more on the many, many other things that I talk in my book. Mm-hmm. But what mm-hmm. I just told you right there, if, it's, if if I support what I'm saying, this literally shakes the very foundations of christianity and my whole orientation you have to realize is looking at the evidence the evidence is my only master i have no other master that's why when you're reading the book in some areas i go in the direction of god other areas i go in the direction of no god but i have become quite adept at analyzing evidence drawing powerful inferences from the evidence just two months ago at the invitation of the pentagon I gave a three-hour lecture to Marine prosecutors uh, down at Camp Pendleton. Mm -hmm. So whatever abilities I have, one of them is in following the evidence. And uh, the evidence in the book is very, very strong. for The proposition that the most sensible position to take is that of agnosticism. Well, with uh, one hundred
1: and five out of one hundred and six uh, cases that you uh, that you want obviously uh, your logic your ability to use logic and to understand and examine the evidence uh, i think uh, goes without saying and we uh, want to thank you so much you know we didn 't get to and i I'm, you know what i 'm going to just take a, a minute or two okay you mentioned the cosmological or first cause, just talk to us a little bit about that why uh Ed, that's hard to get around if you just explain what that is. Yeah,
7: well it started with uh the great Catholic theologian uh Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century is a two volume book Summa Theologica and he said which is pretty obvious that everything in existence whether it's a box a chair a peach on a tree has to have been caused by something else, and that thing in turn by something else. But the belief is that this regression in causation uh, cannot extend backward into infinity. There has to become a point where it goes up against something that was not caused by anything else something that was independent aquinas called it the first cause uh... the uncaused cause if you will and christianity says this first cause is uh, uh, uh... is god now the atheists and the scientists try to get around first cause by arguing something you you've heard about of course the the big bang theory sure that at some point in time about thirteen point seven billion years ago the universe exploded into existence in a zillionth of a second from some subatomic particle now uh, apart from the fact that at least from a layman standpoint it sounds too incredible to believe that the vast universe exploded into existence from something much much smaller than the point of a needle there is an enormous defect in uh, the big bang theory and that is this no matter how small no matter how small That subatomic particle was, it was something. Let me repeat, it was Mm. something. Mm -hmm. And going over to Caltech and reading the books on Big Bang, at least the ones that I read, I was astonished to see that the authors never asked the inevitable question, the automatic question, who put that something there? And until they can come up with a reasonably satisfactory answer to that question, I do not think that Big Bang knocks out first cause. Now, I'm not suggesting. That first cause is a conclusive or dispositive of the issue, but it's a pretty uh, difficult argument to get around.
1: Yeah, indeed. Well, you have given us uh, much food for thought. I'm sure some of what you had to say will disturb some of our listeners, uh, but you have challenged us to think, and as I've said, I think Americans don't do enough of that. I want to thank you very much for your time. We could have gone on. I could have listened to you for another half an hour. I appreciate
7: it very much. It's just the most thought-provoking book that I've ever put out. Well, and and uh, you've put out. Divinity of Doubt, The God Question. And you've put out quite a few. It's The Divinity of Doubt,
1: The God Question, obviously, will be available, I'm sure, at Barnes & Noble and other major bookstores, right?
7: And Amazon.com,
1: yeah. Is there a place where people might follow your work in general?
7: Ah uh, well, you know, I'm still in the 19th century with the yellow pad and pencils, so okay. I I don't have a computer. I think there's a website out there, maybe that the publishers put out, but yeah. I, I I really don't uh, okay. I don't have a computer.
1: Well, they can certainly Google you and find uh, oh, a yeah. number of books that you've written and oh, yeah. uh, and keep track of you that way. Want to thank you so much, uh Vince Bugliosi for being with us. Folks, don't go away. We're going to have Arch Crawford with us. Arch uh does look at the heavenly bodies to get some sense of well, he's an astrologer, and he's also a chartist and a technical analyst. We're going to talk to him about where he thinks the markets are going and, uh, and some other very interesting things from Arch Crawford. Don't go away. We'll be right back.